Hello and welcome to part two of Discoveries. Part one was yesterday. Let's just crack on with the show. Right, okay, I'm taking you back. It's the 15th of July, 1799. Um, and a group of French soldiers, part of Napoleon's invading army, they accidentally uncover this large carved stone that, crucially, it's got three languages carved into it. And uh, as they were digging for the foundations for an extension to their fort at the Egyptian town of Rashid, better known in English as Rosette. Okay, so a lot of you obviously will have guessed what I'm to- about to talk about. Extension to their fort. Are we think like side return. What are we thinking? Yeah, yeah. It was a conservatory, was... actually. Because oh, that's nice. Okay, that's good. You have a barbecue in the garden, and then in the summer you move inside. But it's still you kind of half inside, half outside. It's just nice, isn't it? It's, it's a way of bringing the garden inside. I've said. Yeah, right? yeah. That's how people. Yeah. But I actually, to be honest, I find them uh, quite um, miserable in the winter when it's raining. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. That's why I haven't got one. Anyway. Now, the stone had been built into an ancient wall, which the soldiers had dug out of the sand. Now, the officer commanding was a man called Pierre-Francois Bouchard, who was about 28, and he was a member of the engineering corps, and he realised quite quickly that this was a potentially valuable discovery. So he ordered his men to excavate what had been found. Now, Napoleon had previously given orders to seize any artefacts for France. So the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, as it's now known, or La Pierre de Rosette, as the French called it. It was first published in uh, a Courier de l'Egypte, which was a sort of propaganda newspaper published by Napoleon's army during his occupation of Egypt. And Interesting. The, the whole point of the Courier was that it, it publicised scientific and archaeological discoveries that were made, right? Now, the stone contained one section that was in Greek. A translation of a part of its contents could quite easily be made. And the detail from that summary was fairly boring, right? It noted that um, uh, Ptolemy IV, uh, who reigned in the 3rd century BC, had ordered all of the canals to be reopened. So, like, okay, well, that's fine. The thing is, people thought it was quite boring. I think any information from that long ago is quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. It's a bit like... If I found, I, d- I never kept a diary when I was a kid. If I found a diary entry from when I was, like, eight... Even if it was really dull, the dullness actually I would find quite charming. <laughs> so you're like, all right, it's a bit of admin. He's reopening canals. That's fine. Yeah. It, you're I'd right be a bit though. Hurt. I think if I if I chiselled something into the rock of something that happened, and then thousands of years people found it and went, that's a bit dull. Yeah, boring. <laughs> boring. <laughs> Tom was it. What are they expecting? Sort of gossip chiselled yeah. into you'll never guess who's who's just been seen out with. Yeah, like, like a sort of Hello magazine carved into yeah, a stone. Exactly. This is the thing about history. Like when you go back a thousand years or any length of time, really, you try to you end up talking about the emperors, the kings, the leaders, and actually the mundanity of like the admin is yeah, something yeah, that yeah. gets overlooked. And this is that's what's so interesting about the Rosetta Stone, I think. But it was recognised that the stone might at last lead to the translation of hieroglyphs. Okay, the Interesting. This could provide the key. So in 1801, the Rosetta Stone was surrendered to the British, who successfully removed the French from Egypt, and the object was transferred to London, where it was placed in the British Museum, with plaster casts produced for the universities of Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh and Dublin, so they could all have a go of it. So French scholars 
They were able to make use of lithographic copies of the inscriptions housed at the Institut de France in Paris. Uh, and they were made when the stone was still in French possession in Egypt. So two years later, in 1803, the full translation of the Greek text was published. And this I find really interesting. This then sparked a race to discover the meaning of the hieroglyphs themselves. Because they were thinking, if, if we can provide a link between the Greek and the, Egypt, and the Egyptian... Interesting. ...then at last, this ancient world, which has fascinated but also flummoxed academics for centuries they'll be able to enter it through its writing. So now, a lot of people got involved because they thought, we've got it. We just need to work it out. So numerous individuals were involved in trying to find, in trying to discover what the links were and whether a translation was possible. So a Swedish diplomat called uh, Johan Akleblad, he identified the other language on the stone as Demotic and not Syriac, which is what they thought it was. That's what the courier had said it was. But in the end... It came down to two, right? Thomas Young was an Englishman and Jean-Francois Champollion, who was a Frenchman. Now, this I found fascinating. Despite the hostilities between Britain and France at the time because of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, initially, Young and Champollion were friendly. They were sharing ideas and they were sharing notes. But as they honed their approach to translation, this relationship began to sour. So Young made a breakthrough in the mid-1810s, recognising that proper names were housed in cartouches present in the hieroglyphic inscription. So this led him to to, to work out that the Greek uh, Ptolemaios, or Ptolemy, had been transliterated phonetically into characters representing uh, P-T-O-L-M-E-S, although his solution wasn't quite correct. And also the grammar... That, that still confused him, right? He just couldn't work out the relationship of, um, you know, between the grammar and the words. Okay. Now, Champollion, he was working in a similar way, but he was identifying proper names and establishing the characters used in their transliteration. So in contrast with Young, he worked out that each hieroglyph represented a separate and individual character. So, for instance, um, he was working out that some stuff that Young thought was fairly inessential was actually really, really significant. So from this, he created a phonetic alphabet. Wow, that's incredible. But it was such an enormous intellectual effort. When he, when he worked out the puzzle, when he at last resolved it, he shouted out, I've done it, and then he fell into a faint that lasted for days. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there have been times, right? <laughs> what jo- is that about? Now, Tom and I worked together on a programme <laughs> called Fancy Football League, right? So I present it, and Tom is the lead writer, so we're in a writer's room. And occasionally, we know we want to write a sketch or a joke about a certain thing or a certain footballer, but it's a bit like when you're doing a cryptic crossword and you can't quite work out the answer. So we're searching yeah. for a punchline. And Tom, because he's so talented, it's like five to five, I've got it! And then he'll faint. We'll have to put him into a taxi and just say, take him home because... Get the smelling salts Yeah, out. yeah. He, 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 he went to such effort writing that punchline. He could be out of action for days now. <laughs> I um, One Christmas, when I was about 15, I got a Rubik's Cube and I worked on doing it on Christmas afternoon for so long. It must have been like two hours. And when I finally finished it, I got the worst headache I've ever got in my entire life. And I had to go to bed. 
<laughs> and I was like ruining Christmas Day. It was like two hours of Christmas Day after that. I didn't come down again until like eight o'clock. I just was such a terrible headache. A after Rubik's, Rubik's Cube based migraine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's incredible. I that's amazing. I remember. I'm not. I'm not looking to compare myself <laughs> to a man who's who's cracked the phonetic alphabet of hieroglyphics. <laughs> but all I'm saying is we both achieve things. We've all that's done. That's amazing. I've completed a Rubik's cube. On a similar note, I think it was Christmas '94 or '95 when the Game Boy came out. Oh yeah. I sat playing Tetris from 6 a.m. till about till bedtime, whatever that would have been, 8 p.m. And I went up and went into bed and closed my eyes. And I'm not joking, Tetris bricks started coming down my like, closed eyes. <laughs> and I couldn't stop playing. And even when I was closing my eyes, I played it for couldn't so long. stop playing. I was playing it in my mind. That's Is it. that your superpower, that you're able to close your eyes and play Tetris? So your superpower is you've got, you've got Tetris on your eyelids. You've got Tetris eyes. That's incredible. Wow. But that, I mean, that guy must have gone insane trying to... Trying yeah, to yeah, solve yeah. hieroglyphics. Also, yeah. the thing absolutely with, incredible. The thing with a cryptic crossword, I don't do the. My brain doesn't work it that way, but occasionally I have given them a go. If you wait twenty four hours, the answers are in tomorrow's paper. Yeah. <laughs> this guy, he'd have worked all day, gone to bed, and his housemate or his wife would have said, "You're right." And he'd be like, "Not really. It's so complicated." How long was he out for? Well, after How he waited days, yeah. days, days. Well. Fair play to him. Now, between 1822 and his death in 1832, at the age of just 42, I should I should add, Champollion used various inscriptions and texts to establish a grammar and a dictionary of ancient Egyptian, both of which were published after his death uh, in 1836 and 1841, respectively. Now, not only had he discovered the meaning of hieroglyphs, which is absolutely huge, yeah, he'd also enabled scholars to determine how ancient Egyptian writing had evolved from its hieratic form into its demotic script and how to read documents from different periods. So, I mean, wow! if you study ancient Egypt, you've got so much to thank him for. He's, he's unlocked it. Yeah. Now, I love the this. The satisfaction, by the way, as you're approaching the end of your life, thinking, no matter what happens, as I depart this earth, I will, I will forever be the guy who cracked hieroglyphs. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've given that to the world. I bloody finished that Rubik's Cube. And yeah. it took me absolutely ages, but I got there. <laughs> Regret nothing. Now, there were sour grapes from British scholars, which I find hilarious, because in the age of imperial competition, they couldn't believe they'd been beaten by a Frenchman. <laughs> uh. <laughs> they were like, what? A Frenchman? Yeah. So for years afterwards, it was thought Champollion had either stolen the work of Thomas Young, which was an argument Young encouraged before his own wow. death in 1829. Come on, mate. Yeah, or had simply okay. made up his discoveries. So uh, Sir George Lewis was a liberal politician, Eton and Oxford educated. He refused to believe that the puzzle of hieroglyphs had been cracked. He kept saying, listen, it's just impossible. There's no, there's no way a Frenchman could have done it. But in 1866, the discovery of the trilingual decree of uh, Canopus at Tanis which could be read using Champollion's methods, proved that the Frenchman had been right after all, and he is now credited with the discovery of how to read ancient Egyptian. I just, I'm just impressed at his ability to keep going. Yeah. Because there must have been times when he would have thought, oh, fuck, I'm not getting anywhere with this. And that must be so demoralising. Absolutely. But then if you've got a mind which is, 
set and it, it, it has you know to, that need to crack puzzles that logic that sort of then it's, it's, it's completely counter to the way my mind works yeah yeah so i would absolutely give up immediately yeah. but i completely get if you're if you are of that leaning that that need to yeah, work it out would, i can imagine remain. tinkering with it and then every now and then like when izzy was on the toilet thinking i'll give it another go and then <laughs> after a couple of minutes you're like no i can't do it it's fine like when you leave a sort of uh, a puzzle on a the puzzle table after christmas yeah, for a couple yeah, of weeks yeah. and you'll go your I'll, I'll stick another piece in. yeah it's january the 6th i'll give solitaire one more go if i can just find the corner pieces <laughs> and, and some flat edges then we could be onto something also i reckon he'd have had people offering really bad advice yeah what I've, I've I don't know. Um, have you worked out what A is yet? No. <laughs> right. Have you worked out what B is yet? No. Have you worked out what? They don't listen. Really to our alphabet, it doesn't really work. Yes. Yeah. It may not even be an A. <laughs> <laughs> there probably isn't an A. Please, Mum, leave it. <laughs> leave it. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, let me ask you now to cast your mind back to the 1880s. Rome, undergoing a construction boom propelled by its newfound status as the capital of a unified Italian kingdom, a period of urban renewal. Uh, have you been to Rome? I've been to Rome. And I've been to Rome. No, I haven't, actually. It was too hot. It was far too hot when <laughs> I went. That's what my mum and dad said when they went. Just... Too hot. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the Colosseum? It was very hot. That's not what <laughs> yeah. I asked. I um I went to Rome, did all the touristy stuff. A few things happened. Uh, firstly, went to uh, the Colosseum, had a tour guide who looked like the Arnold from Hey Arnold. Because <laughs> like, right. like, he's obviously like a failed actor or something, and he was doing this. And he, his cadence was this. Okay, here's where the gladiators go. They would come down here, get changed, and they'd come up with their feather boas on. That's a joke. And they would come up here, and they would battle the lions, and the Christians would die. Uh, some would escape. That's a joke. And if we go over, like, I was, I was like, well, hang on. That's useful. Well, I, didn't, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. My life as a stand-up would be so much easier. If only I'd known that trick. They do that rapid rapid can they do that at Westminster Abbey? <laughs> so the, 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 that is where uh, that is where uh, Queen Victoria is uh, buried, and uh, that is where uh, Bluey, the cartoon character, is buried. Uh, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> the cadence was machine gun fire, and you're having to pick through it to figure. Hang on, is that going to be a joke, or is that actually did that actually happen? <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> that's a joke. And over here is where. That is where it the gladiators used to eat quite... uh, Snickers and Mars bars before. That's a joke. <laughs> it could just be talk. It's quite a clever way to cover yourself if you're not really entirely sure about many of the facts. He's sort of done a. He knows a bit about the Colosseum. Yeah. If, if you always say that's a joke after everything, then nobody can really sort of <laughs> haul you, you know, haul you over the coals. For I admire that. 
That's a joke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then that so there's a couple of us. We went to the uh, went to a restaurant in the evening, and the restaurateur came up to us and said, "Hey guys, do you like live music?" And we went, "Oh, we've just we just love a chat." To you said, like, "Is that a joke?" And then <laughs> and then there was like an archway, like a brick archway, right next to the table. And then uh, he went, oh, "Oh," and walked off. And a man with a guitar stood at the top of our table for the next two hours, playing guitar, like right yeah. next to our faces. Yeah. Wow. That's, how that's annoying. <laughs> Yeah, but the other thing, the noisy the, pasta. <laughs> the main thing about Rome, which I found absolutely mad, is there's just so much history everywhere. Yeah, We're just yeah. walking through random streets, and it's like you saw the the palace where Julius Caesar was uh, assassinated. That's there. You can just walk past. You'd like yeah. just walk right around. You like if that was wow. London, it would be a super. Yeah. <laughs> in a weird, in a weird way, it's kind of amazing that Rome has persisted as a city because you think oh God, there's so much here you shouldn't really be allowed to touch. It's kind of amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But in the 1880s, when Rome was undergoing this kind of construction boom, of course, people were finding stuff everywhere all the time. Wow. And on Saturday, the 7th of February, 1885, workers were busy preparing land on the south face of the Quirinal Hill for the construction of the National Theatre. They were tidying away some rubbish, just tidying up slightly, and they caught a part of a bronze statue. The site foreman insisted that the discovery be kept secret, removing what had been found to a place of greater safety so that government officials could meet at the site the following day and decide what to do. Do you know what struck me about these discoveries? The person who makes the discovery, their initial decision is so important. Yes. Yeah. Because if they think, oh, it's far, fuck it. It's just, you know, it can't be that important. And then they break it or they bury it or they carry on as normal then you could be destroying uh, historical study for the next, well, forever. Yeah. But if you've got someone who's, who's a bit savvy and goes, hang on, to me that looks significant, that then completely changes the game. So you're reliant on That's really interesting. being sensible and, having, and being on. Do you know what I thought with all this, which will have definitely happened? Someone has made an incredible discovery and not told anyone. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like... That must have happened. Yeah. Anyway, so back to the Quirinal Hill. Uh, what to do with this statue? So the, the, the statue they'd found was a two-metre-high statue of an athlete, which is now known as the Hellenistic Prince. And, yes, he has his knob out. <laughs> no. a, lot of the, a lot of these bronze statues that they're discovering, yeah. they've all got knobs out. Now, it's just weird to my modern eye. You don't get too many statues now, do you, with knob out? I just find it, why Why was it everywhere? Why was every statue knob out? Was everyone, no one was naked, were they? I know that hands are hard to sort of draw. Is it really hard to sculpt <laughs> pants? I don't know what the, is it famously a really tricky thing to to chisel? Genuine question. But, you know, no one, everyone was walking around with pants on. It's not It's not an authentic replication yes. of what people were actually doing. So why, the, why what's the deal? Well, there's a chance that when the statues were initially displayed in ancient Rome, that they also had robes on. They had clothes that were just draped over. So it was, actual it was purely for if someone wanted to have so a they dress them. And Anna- <laughs> like a mannequin in a shop window. <laughs> and they dress them in clothes. And then as they fell to the, you know, the, the, the sands of time, those clothes have fallen away to reveal the, uh, the brutal truth. That's, of the that's, that's a very funny idea. Because in the same way that there's a statue of Nybevan uh, in Cardiff yeah. on um, on Queen Street, and every Saturday night someone puts a coat on his head. 
And found a, exactly. the NHS gets a comb put on his head every Saturday night, and then on Sunday morning, someone from the council takes it off. <laughs> like every statue in Rome, sort of a thousand, two thousand years ago, had a pair of Bermuda shorts on, but they have perished in time. <laughs> Same as the traffic cone will have expired in two thousand years. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, a month after Hellenistic prints was discovered. A month later, a second discovery was made and in similar circumstances. This time, experts were summoned immediately so they could present as the statue as it was, quite literally unearthed. A photographer joined them, producing an image that showed the discovery in a context of mud and the ladders and spades, basically where it was found in the context of modern building work. So this is the first-hand account, what I'm going to read to you now, from one of those present that afternoon for the second discovery. Uh, this is from a then-resident in Rome, an art critic, novelist, poet and journalist. Her name is Anne Hampton Brewster, a descendant of William Brewster, who's one of those who sailed to America aboard the Mayflower. And Miss Brewster penned her account for the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, one of the newspapers to whom she sold stories in the period. Her, this appeared on the 3rd of May, 1885. Upon first seeing the Hellenistic prints, while we were on our way to the place where where the Hellenistic prince is deposited. News came through that another bronze statue had been found a few moments before near the very same spot. Wow. And they're finding statues one after the other. She raced off accompanied by an archaeologist called Rodolfo Lanciani. It is impossible, Brewster wrote, to describe the emotion the discovery caused to all present. She watched as labourers, guards, contractors, builders and archaeologists all became excited and as full of joy as Lanciani and my humble self, she wrote. In a notebook, she recorded her observations. I sat down on a stone and watched the men lift the earth carefully away from the precious bronze. Lanciani, the archaeologist, also wrote... I have witnessed in my long career many discoveries, but I have never felt such an extraordinary impression as the one created by the sight of this magnificent specimen of a semi-barbaric athlete slowly coming out of the ground as if awakening from a long repose after his gallant fights. So this the statue is called the Boxer at Rest, and it depicts a kind of gladiator, they think, shortly after a fight, maybe resting in a dressing room with his hands bandaged, and it is incredible. This is uh, how Brewster described the statue. She says, reposing after combat and waiting to re-enter the arena, his head turned to the right. He seemed to be listening to someone or watching a combat. His elbows rested on his legs. The hands were folded over one another. The hands and forearms had on them costas, thongs or bands of leather, which were wounds about the hands and arms of ancient pugilists in order to make their blows more powerful. So they discovered multiple statues, one after the other. And what they know, now know about these, these statues was that they were quite carefully buried at the time. Interesting. They weren't kind of like found under rubble. They think they were buried with real care and attention in the hope that hundreds of years later they would be found. That's and, incredible. Um, I didn't know that. I'm looking at yes. it now. The boxer rest is unbelievable. Ah, it's it extraordinary. It's haunting almost, isn't it? Yeah. There's a haunting quality to it that that is laid for hundreds, thousands of years under the soil in Rome, waiting to be discovered. I think there is something particular about art that is discovered from ancient times and especially statues. I went to the British Museum a month ago and there's this tiny little Bronze Age statue and you could see in it the little markings where it had been chiselled or cut or whatever whatever skill yeah. the artist would have used at the time. And I, I'm always fascinated by that, those, those little marks. It's thousands of years ago, 
someone would have, or hundreds of years, whatever, whatever the, the piece is, someone, the care, the time, yeah. and you can still see that now, but that someone would have been sat there slowly working and forming this piece for, you know, I, I, I just find it, I just find it really sort of, it's just moving, the care and the love that throughout yeah. the centuries you can still see it now. And you realise that to create is a very human impulse and a very human instinct. Exactly. And people have always wanted to do it in the same way that, you know, in 2,000 years' time, people go, I don't know, there's just something about history podcasts from the yeah. from the 2020s. I just find very moving. The idea that three, three friends who've got other stuff on, actually, could just every week at 8 a.m. Mm. get their girlfriends or wives to do the school and they could just talk about Sutton Hoo for a bit. But what's great is because the subject is history, it's still relevant today and we can still enjoy it. <laughs> it still makes sense. It's not bedded in 2024. They're talking about stuff that's still history today. God, uh, this reminds me of a bit of Stuart Lee's stand-up in which he says that he lives in Hackney. And in Hackney, there are many, many chicken shops. And he worries that in 2,000 years, historians will try to dig up Hackney and just find millions of chicken carcasses and assume that this was the place of an ancient chicken battle between two <laughs> rival chicken tribes. <laughs> All right, that's it for Discoveries. Thank you for listening. Actually, if you want to make one more discovery, you could discover the fourth part to this episode, which is on ancient travellers to Newfoundland. Have I got that right, Tom? Yes. It is on proof that the Vikings made it all the way to North America. Finally, proof that the sagas were correct. There you go. If you want to get that bit, you can just, if you're listening on Apple, you can just go on the show and you see subscribe. You can click that button and subscribe that way. You can also go to anotherslice.com forward slash oh what a time and get a subscription to listen on any podcast app you want. And then there's also Spotify. If you want all the options though, head to ohwhatatime.com and support the show. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. <laughs>